So Acts chapter 1, the book of Acts of the Apostles is the fifth book of the New Testament. It is the last book of biblical history. Um, It is the narrative of the early church of Jesus Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as the Gospels were to the ministry of Christ. It is the historical account of the events of about 30 years' time uh, to which the apostles were witnesses. The author, uh, other than the Holy Spirit, the uh, Dr. Luke, whose purpose it was in writing the account, even though there are many volumes out there to discuss the different alternatives, everything from the idea that the book of Acts is an evangelistic tract to a defense of the Roman government regarding the charges of Christianity's seditious activity, burning of Rome, etc., etc. Really, all that's somewhat irrelevant. Uh, Luke certainly had an understanding of the importance of his time, something that we often lack. Um, Luke recognized that he was living in a crucial period of time. Um, We have this tendency to see the past and the future as more important than the present, something that uh, C.S. Lewis talks about in the Screwtape Letters as a part of spiritual warfare. The enemy needs to keep us from seeing the present as the focal point of what we're doing because basically you can't do anything in the future and you can't do anything in the past. As long as you're not thinking about the present, you're pretty likely to do nothing. Um, There is evidence that Luke believed that he was recording sacred history as opposed to knowing that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, in, in that the book of Acts appears to be written in the style, roughly, of the Greek Old Testament histories. Um, and not knowing Greek all that well or being familiar with the Septuagint, I couldn't give you any more specifics. That's what I understand. God's purpose is, as usual, multifaceted. A lot going on here. Theologically, especially in those sections of the book, that focus upon the discourse of Peter or the Apostle Paul or the words of Jesus or, of course, the narrative inspired by the Holy Spirit, not necessarily doctrinal. Um, <coughs> excuse me. There's an absence of any kind of a, an overt polemic in the narrative. In other words, there's no real axe to grind. It's just a, an honest, accurate presentation of the facts, the issues that, that were... Um, taking place at the time. Historical perspectives give an account of the foundations of the church as well as the understanding of the people and their perspective. Interesting note to that, they understood what they understood as well as what they didn't understand. As you're going through the beginning, this is the beginning of the church. There are a lot of things, they don't have systematic theology or biblical theology to draw upon. Like you can just go and pick up, you know, Thayer's theology and look through and look at the idea of the Holy Spirit and how it works and all the different... They didn't have that. They really didn't. They were just, you know, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, let's see. You know, that was kind of uh, an an interesting adventure to them. Uh, An interesting historical account of the entrance of the Gentiles into God's economy. An interesting account of the beginning of the separation of Christianity from Judaism, in a a real way. Uh, An account of the beginning of the evangelism, the Western world, Christ's impact on the Roman Empire. As per secular reliability, the book of Acts, um, Sir William Ramsey is regarded as one of the greatest archaeologists to have ever lived. 
He was a student of German historical school in the mid-19th century. And as a result, he believed the book of Acts was a product, something he learned in college, of the mid-2nd century. The book of Acts was written in 161, you know, about 100 years after the time of Christ. That's what he believed coming out of school. He was firmly convinced of this belief. And in his research to make a topographical study of Asia Minor, he was compelled to consider the writings of Luke. And as a result, he was forced to do a complete reversal of his beliefs due to the overwhelming evidence uncovered in his research. This is a quote from from Ramsey. He said, Luke's ability as a historian, Ramsey concluded after 30 years of study, like Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. A biographical uh, uh, aspect of the book of Acts, especially as concerning the apostles Peter and Paul, Minoring and others such, Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, Timothy, numerous other cameo appearances, Apollos and others, great stuff. Uh, Spiritual emphasis, showing the transition of the salvation that was first manifest during the earthly ministry of Christ in an ever-widening circle of influence. Um, Interesting question. The 120 people that we find in our chapter here, chapter 1 of Acts, would they have believed what God was able to do by Acts chapter 28? Would would they have believed it? Would they have thought it possible? Um, As a chronicle of the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, of which there are hundreds, as the inspired word of God, uh, song we just sang, Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Word of God is living and powerful, sharp as a two-edged sword, dividing even to the division of soul and spirit. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12.11, the words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. One shepherd. The wonder of God's word is not only who it, what it is, or how relevant it is, but the fact that he wrote it for you individually. You believe in Jesus Christ. You believe in the Holy Spirit. You believe God put this book in your hand for you, knowing that you would read it and intending to speak to you individually about your life. Individually. Very important stuff. Um, Fascinating as to how the phrase, the phrase, the word of God, is used throughout the book of Acts. Uh, It's used as a reference to speaking the word of God boldly when filled with the Holy Spirit, even uh, by the gift of prophecy, for instance. Uh, It is um, used as a reference, a euphemism for the relationship with Christ. Acts 8.14, now the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Word of God, euphemism for relationship. As a euphemism for the good news of Christ all over the place. Uh, several times chapter 13, also in chapter 17. Which, of course, it is. Also, following the ascension of Christ, we get started here today. Uh, as Daryl mentioned last week, Acts chapter 1, verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You have heard from me. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. God gives direction and instruction. People are, his people 
are going to be responsive to him. And they did exactly as he instructed. And so we pick up the narrative here in verse 12, okay? Following the ascension of Jesus. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Okay. Obedience to the command. Verse 12. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, And I said, I pray, O Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. As opposed to those who love you, And do not observe your commandments. Important caveat in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5. In the Gospel of John chapter 13 verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Throughout the scripture, folks, obedience is the criteria. Being responsive to God. Responding to the word of God. This is what faith is about. When I receive the word of God and I respond, it's characterized as responding in faith. We're all going to understand things, every one of us in the whole world, going to understand things a little bit differently. It's called perspective. Yours is different than mine. God has built it into the creation. It is one of the really kind of beautiful things that he has done, allowing people from different worlds to unite in the same purpose, even though they do not see things identically. The real issue for us is our willingness, one, and ability, to to conform to what we do understand as his will. This is obedience, and it always precedes God's blessing. Notice, these people, of which we'll see here shortly, there are 120 of them, these people did not really understand what they were doing. They really didn't have the whole, oh, you know, okay, so you want us to go wait in Jerusalem? And uh, why? Why is that? Why do you want us to wait? What? And what should we do while we're waiting? Okay, and this is because of, they didn't get that information. They did not get that information. Except that they were following the Lord's directions, kind of similar in an interesting way to the way that Abraham received commands from God. If you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. In other words, God told Abraham with his wife and his father and Lot and who knows who else he was dragging along with him. God said, go. And he said, okay, where? He said, go. Like this way? That's fine. Go. Because, okay, well. And what is he supposed to do? His wife gets, well, where are we going? Uh, we're going this way. <laughs> he not knowing where he was going. If you give me some detailed instructions, 
instructions that I do not necessarily understand the purpose to, what is the determining factor as to whether I execute those instructions to the letter or not? Let me suggest to you that the determining factor is my relationship to the source of instruction. Um, if Chris comes up to me and says, Tony, I want you to go out in the middle of the street there in Colorado Boulevard, wave your hands up and down and stand out there and sort of look like a scarecrow and do this for about 15 minutes at 1035 tonight. I will say, are you feeling okay, Chris? Are you, are, are you, are you all right? You know, it's, what's going on? And, and pray about it and think. And say, oh, it's Kenny and I don't know. You know, I like Chris. He's a great guy. We get along really well, but if Xavier comes up to me and he says, Tony, I need you to go out in the middle of Colorado Boulevard about 1035 tonight and stand there with one hand up and one hand out like this and sort of look like, I'm like, okay, boss. <laughs> and chances are pretty good that I'm going to be out there in the middle of the street. I've been hanging out with this guy for 40 years. And I cannot count on one hand the bad advice that he's given me. And so my ability to follow and execute instructions that I do not understand to execute them to the letter, the determining factor is my relationship to the source of the instruction. In other words, when God gives me direction that I may or may not understand, the purpose of, which by the way is something that he likes to do all the time, God likes to give his people instructions that they do not entirely understand. Okay? It becomes, among other things, an indicator of where my relationship is with him. Fortunately, in this case, Jesus had given these instructions to a number of different people in different circumstances. Luke twenty four forty nine. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So the promise of my father, power from on high, those are very, you know, engaging ideas, whatever that is. Acts 1.4, again, as we read in Acts 1.5, he said, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptized with the Holy Spirit, promise from on high, promise of the father. Sounds good. Even as far back as the book of Joel and the minor prophets, which they may or may not have connected to the present circumstances. Peter's going to connect it pretty quickly. Joel 2.29, and on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so even though there is the issue of not knowing exactly what's going on at the moment, having just in the last 50 days gone through the crucifixion of Christ, followed by three days later his resurrection, numerous meetings with Jesus during the 40 days that he was hanging around Israel and, and Jerusalem and Galilee, uh, these guys have some serious momentum. Good reason to believe that all 120 people in the upper room saw Jesus alive after his, his suffering. That they saw him alive after his crucifixion. Because we know as many as 500 people saw him at one time alive after his suffering. So they have some momentum in trusting God. And when you do what God is directing, he is faithful to confirm and provide that encouragement step by step, which we need sometimes. We need that encouragement step by step. The Mount of Olives mentioned here in verse 12 uh, is a pretty big place. Uh, the narrative doesn't really give us any specifics about where on the Mount Jesus ascended from, probably because people would go there and make some huge shrine and worship it. 
Uh, a Sabbath day's journey is 2,000 cubits, about 2,600 feet, and that would be from the city wall by measurement from the outside of the city wall, 2,600 feet in any direction. There is, on the Mount of Olives, a church of the Ascension, built originally in the middle 4th century, uh, maybe inspired by the location ability of... Um, uh, What's his name? Uh, the Caesar. Uh, his mom. Who? Constantine. Constantine. Thank you. Appreciate it, Chris. Constantine's mom. And uh, um, they built it in the 4th century. May have had some historical backstory. But, you know, difficult to have any real confidence about the location of a current chapel. And that now there's a chapel slash mosque there built in the 12th century by Salah Adin of uh, Islamic fame, Saladin, who actually was a Kurd, um, uh, a uh, Sunni Kurd, very interesting guy, um, Sultan of Egypt and, and Syria, which you'll notice includes Israel in there, built it in the 12th century, and a good portion of it's still there. Do we have any real reason to believe that's where Jesus is? In? No, not really, not really. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about this upper room that they're talking about, mentioned in uh, verse 13, uh, the last half of verse 13, might be a part of the temple precinct, some commentators think. And the reason for that is the last verse of Luke, Luke twenty four fifty three, And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. However, because the disciples were in fact staying there, again in the last half of verse 13, seems more likely that it was some private residence, perhaps of a disciple. Some people think it was the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where the disciples met for prayer. Uh, when Peter was in prison. Possibility, but we're talking about a pretty big room. Could we get 120 people praying into this room? Maybe with a shoehorn. Uh, 120 people would be pretty tight in this room. And most, maybe some of them stayed elsewhere, but for the most part, they stayed there. Again, we don't really know about the upper room. Um, we have the listing of the 11 remaining apostles here, minus, of course, Judas Iscariot, indicating that there was a continuing purpose to the structure and these leaders that Jesus had put in place. Verse 14 tells us, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Now, Jesus appeared occasionally throughout the 40 days before his ascension. And then there's 10 days time from the ascension of the Lord to the beginning of chapter 2, the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, ten days are not a lot of days, but it's not nothing either. It's you know, about the length of time that our team is going to be gone in Israel here, actually. These people are steadfast, devoted, and committed to what? What are they committed to? To the Lord's purpose, to His plan. Not their plan or their idea, but they all, every single one of them without exception dedicated to prayer and supplication. Let me suggest to you that this is something very special. It's hard to get a half a dozen people together committed to prayer. It's a difficult thing to do in one accord, in, in agreement. Like these people were in agreement. These people were locked in. They really were. 120 people dedicated to being of one mind, committed to prayer unto the Lord for 10 days' time. And the result of this is the revealing of the church of Christ to the nation Israel, the beginning of chapter 2. This spend time in prayer with the Lord, it's going to bear fruit. It is not 
what you're going to find is the easiest thing to do. It's not going to feel like what you always want to do. Spending time in prayer with the Lord is going to bear fruit in your life in a powerful way, just as it does for these 120 people. And then one last thing here, the mention of Jesus' mother and his brothers. Mary had been present and is mentioned in the Gospels, even at the crucifixion, John 19.25, she's there 40 days earlier, or 50 days, depending on how close we are to Pentecost. His brothers are also mentioned in the Gospels. And the last time being John chapter 7, at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, where they mockingly encouraged Jesus to go up to the feast. In in John chapter 7, in verse 3. And John tells us in John 7, 5, for even his brothers did not believe him. And yet we find them in a very different circumstance here in the first chapter of Acts. Apparently, something has changed. His brothers are included with 120 disciples gathering in prayer and in one accord. Uh, We know that Jesus had four uh, half-brothers from Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And at least two sisters, maybe more. We don't have any sisters he had, but he had at least two. Because they're again mentioned in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. There is a lot of church tradition about the salvation and the ministry of Jesus' half-brothers. From the scripture, we know that Jesus' half-brother James is a very prominent man and probably becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James is mentioned as a leader in um, Acts chapter 15, verse 13 at the first church council. And actually, by the end of the first church council in Acts 15, James seems to be expressing the deciding uh, direction of the issue that they're involved with, indicating that he is in a very serious leadership role there. Uh, In Acts chapter 21, verse 18, before Paul's arrest, he meets with James, specifically as leader of the church in Jerusalem. A couple of Paul's epistles in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and in Galatians 1, 19, and then again in Galatians 2.9. In Galatians 1.19, he's referred to as James, the Lord's brother. Um, and then he is the author, of course, of the book of James. Maybe, we don't know for certain, but maybe the earliest book of the New Testament written. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 1, specifically written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. No, no Gentiles yet in the church. So this would be before uh, the ministry in... Um, to the, the house of Cornelius by Peter, if, if that's actually the case. And he's the author, again, the book of James. And then his brother Jude is the author of the book of G, Jude. We do have some scriptural input as to the source of this change. In the case of James, uh, in the mention of his name in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about verse 1. Uh, the beginning of the gospel, Paul's pre- talking about the gospel which he preaches and encourages people to hold fast. Uh, in verse 3, he says, I delivered you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas. That would be Peter. Cephas is Aramaic for Peter. And then by the twelve, uh, that would be the twelve Apostles minus Judas Iscariot, the 11. But they're referred to as the 12. Once of whom he, appear, he appeared greater to the greater part, and they remain present. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. 
I messed that up. To Cephas and then the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present day, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James. And then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by one born out of due time. Two interesting points here, okay? Jesus, following the resurrection, appears to two men alone that we know of. Actually, three people. He appears to Mary Magdalene alone in the Gospel of John. And we have the account of what goes on between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Really awesome thing. Then he appears to two other men, one-on-one. One is Peter. And then after the account of his appearing to everybody in the Gospel of John, he appears to his brother James. We know that Paul saw Christ in a vision, not in his resurrected body. But James sees the Lord just after the over 500 brethren at one time. 1 Corinthians 15.6 Stands to reason that this is not a vision as such. Why would Jesus choose to appear to one individual without others present? I'm sure he had a good reason. Sure, he had a very good reason. It could be that he had something to tell them that was private and personal. It's interesting that there is no scriptural account of either of these two appearances. A scriptural account in terms of what did he say, what went on, you know. It's kind of interesting. We do have, which leads you to, got to lead you to believe, because Luke was an investigator. He talked to everybody. He got accounts from all people who were present in situations. Luke talked to Peter. Luke had opportunity to meet Simon Peter, talk to him and get his account, and also talk to John Mark, who was uh, an assistant, more or less, to Simon Peter in many things. And they believe that actually Mark's gospel is Peter's account. Notice that Luke gives us no account of what Jesus said to Peter, leading me personally to believe that Peter wasn't telling anybody what Jesus said to him when he appeared after the resurrection. Um, Again, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. We know this. These two guys, he didn't say anything. Simon Peter had undergone a dramatic change. And James and his brothers come to faith in Jesus. Right now, they are locked and loaded in the upper room with the other 120 disciples. And they know that they know that Jesus is God. In human flesh, you died for the sins of the world. They're not budging. So what exactly did Jesus say to James? No idea. No idea in the world. I have no idea what he said to Peter. But I just think it's interesting that, you know, there are things the Lord doesn't share with us. You know, There are all kinds of things about you that he doesn't tell me. And aren't you glad? <laughs> I know I'm really glad there are things about me he doesn't tell you. <clears throat> so they've undergone a... Simon Peter's undergone a dramatic change in his life and is bold to speak out for Christ. And so as they're praying, we get to verse 15 here. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Scriptures referring specifically to the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, verses 12 through 15. Both of these passages 
have uh, one attribute uh, can be attributed to David's betrayal by Ahithophel at the time of the rebellion of Absalom. And they are the foreshadowing of what is the greatest betrayal of all human history. And that is the treachery of Judas Iscariot toward God himself. As Judas Iscariot betrayed God himself in human flesh. One of the interesting things about this situation here is that the one sharing these words is Simon Peter. With one particular distinction, he is also a man who had recently betrayed the Lord. Hadn't he? Forty some days back, he had denied the Lord multiple times on the night of the Lord's greatest need. But the distinction, of course, Peter had turned from his betrayal, had repented from his sin. And because of that, the Lord had restored Peter. But let me ask you, do you think Peter feels superior to Judas in this situation? Other than the fact that he's been, he's been restored. Do you think that he was inclined to look down on Judas? Or do you think that he would feel pity for Judas's situation? I mean, Judas is in a bad place, folks. Anybody of whom the Lord says, it would have been better for this man had he never been born. It doesn't get much worse than that. I mean, I think you could rightly say that of anybody who's going to fall under God's judgment. But this guy's in a special place. Uh, it is so important for us to realize that the Lord is the one that sustains us. It's not about our amazing righteousness, of which there is none, basically. You know, we don't have amazing righteousness. Romans 7.18, the Apostle Paul tells us, For I know this, that in me, in my flesh... Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. To give us some perspective regarding those who fail to trust the Lord. Peter reminds us that this guy was just like us. For in verse 17, he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. In a thousand years or so from today, folks. So as you and I may look back on this world. And we will no doubt consider the situations of these men and women who lived here uh, through the ages. I think we might see these men who walked with Jesus as among, or if not, the most blessed people to have ever lived. Not very many people got to hang out with Jesus while he was alive on the earth. Just a, a small group. You know, these 120 in the upper room were people who probably had direct access to Jesus during this time. But the 12 apostles especially. It's an exalted position. It's a unique opportunity, unlike anything in the history of mankind. God's judgment upon man is always based upon accountability. In other words, that is your understanding of the truth that God has shown you. See, God's shown you certain things. And he's shown me certain things. And I am accountable to God for the things that he has shown me. I will answer to him. For those things, as you will answer to God concerning the things that He has shown you, God holds us to account that the tr- to the truth that He's shown us, and so you could easily make the case that these men are among the most highly accountable people in the history of creation. So busted, very accountable. If you really understand what that means, like I think Peter has some idea about his accountability to God. The situation of Judas Iscariot is not like a thing that anyone should ever take lightly or find remotely amusing. It's not. 
It is tragic beyond description. And so as Peter describes the end of this man, he does it with restraint. Almost, not really, but almost respectfully. Even though it was foretold in the scripture that Judas, that it was the choice that he made. He was the one who bore the consequence and the responsibility for his choice. And so Peter gives us the detail here in verses 18 through 20. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Achelama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Now it would seem that verses 18 and 19 are a parenthesis set down by Luke, the historian, as there would be no reason for Peter to explain the common language of the Jews. Whoever he was writing to or speaking to in, in chapter 1 here, they would have understood the language he wouldn't have needed to explain it. Um, and the 120 in the room. Verse 19, uh, in, Matthew chapter, in Matthew chapter 27, we have a comprehensive outline of the events around the death of Judas, directly following the condemnation of Jesus by Pilate before, before Jesus was actually dead. Then in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said... It's not lawful for us to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them a potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. And they took the 30 pieces, the value of him who was priced, whom they had of the children of Israel Christ, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Um, we have an account. We have the account of Judas overwhelmed with grief for what he had done to return the pieces of silver to the priests, which gives us, I think, in my opinion, one of the greatest examples of hypocrisy in all the scripture, the chief priests refusing to take the money back, which they had given Judas, you know, as blood money. He throws it into the temple, and so they discuss with one another. They they can't put it into the offering. It's blood money. They come up with a compromise. They purchase the, the field for the burial of the poor. That would be those people without a family connection that would see to their arrangements. Um, they buy this field to take care of the bodies of, of people who are not taken care of. In the meantime... Luke also tells us in Acts that Judas purchased this field, which in a sense he did. It was his money. They took no part of it. They didn't put it in the offering. They purchased the field with it. And as justice plays out, this is where he winds up. Now, the quote that Matthew tells us 
is a reference to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, we do have a reference to Jeremiah buying a field. While he's in custody in the house in Jerusalem before the fall of the city. But this quote is not from Jeremiah. This quote is from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for me 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took 30 pieces of silver, threw it to the house of the Lord for the potter. And so they purchased this potter's field in agreement with what the scripture says. Now, a little bit of an issue here. I don't know that there's an adequate explanation for why this reference to Jeremiah is here. A couple of possibilities. Uh, Gleason Archer seems to think that it, he's actually amalgamating the idea of Jeremiah purchasing the field in Ananoth and the idea of the quote from Zechariah giving the reference to Jeremiah because Jeremiah is the prominent prophet. And Gleason Archer cites cases in other Gospels where there are, there's a collection of verses that are put together from different prophetic books and the, the reference is given to the more notable prophet. In Matthew, he gives the the quote of Isaiah. That's possible. That, that might be the case. The other idea here is that the Hebrew Bible was div- divided up differently in the first century than it is, than our Western Bible is, is divided up. And there would be the Torah, the first five books, the books of Moses, after which you would have the earlier prophets, which would be uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel, or the major prophets, and then Jeremiah would start the third section of the minor prophets, and so they would refer to it as the section of the Old Testament, beginning with Jeremiah, where actually uh, Zechariah would be later on in that section. That's a possibility. Um, I don't know. I don't know really. I don't you know. You know, Lord knows. So it's, uh, verse eighteen b tells us. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. We are again left somewhat to our own speculation as to how we know Judas hanged himself, Matthew 27, 5. And specifically, the Greek uh, gives us the impression that he hanged himself uh, from something like a branch to a tree. Uh, Jerusalem is built on mountains. Trees are often hanging, I mean, if you hang yourself on a on a tree that hangs out, it might be quite a distance before the ground uh, is engaged. And if you're going to hang yourself, you're going to hang yourself somewhere where the ground is not accessible to you. Otherwise, it's just not going to work really well. Um, And that his body, perhaps, being somewhat inaccessible and Jews not being really prone to going around messing with dead bodies to begin with because they make you unclean and it's not a good idea. It fell from the place where he had hanged himself and his body burst open in the middle. All his entrails gushed out as it tells us here in verse chapter, verse 18 B, the last part of verse 18. And then of course, his body being unclaimed, he is buried in the potter's field, which in a sense he purchased. It becomes his, his place. Luke and Matthew tell us it became known as the field of blood to that community. Now, this is now at the time that Peter's speaking about Judah's situation. This is five weeks or more from those events. And certainly these things could have all been concluded well beyond that. Peter goes on 
in verse 24. It is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate. Let no one let, it, let another take his office. Now these are from uh, Psalm 69, 25. Let the dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. And Psalm 109, verse 8, let his days be few. Let another take his office. Those two quotes. So Peter takes from the Psalms scriptural direction from the Lord to let another take his his office. You know, as you go through this early section of the book of Acts, it is, if you really take the time to look at it, it is very impressive, the broad familiarity with the Old Testament scripture that these guys had. Um, Especially Simon Peter. This guy knows his Bible. He knows his stuff. Uh, as he preaches in Acts chapter 2 and 4, he is quoting lengthy passages from different books by memory. Lengthy passages. Okay, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. I get that. But the Holy Spirit has almost never given me Bible verses that I haven't become familiar with beforehand. I say almost never because there are times when I've shared with people and I'd be like, I didn't know I knew that. That does happen from time to time. I don't think Peter went through this whole section from the book of Joel in chapter 2 without being familiar. You know, it's pretty plain that these guys hadn't spent the last three and a half years doing nothing. And you don't get that kind of familiarity with the word of God without a substantial investment. So much so that, you know, in Acts chapter 4 verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the religious leaders perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men and they marveled and then they realized they had been with Jesus because they're they're looking at these guys these guys are standing up here they're representing they're speaking publicly they're quoting the scripture and they're like these guys are a bunch of yahoos from Galilee how you know and they're not doing a poor job they're not doing and somebody leaned over to the chief priest these guys were all with Jesus Ah, I get it. You know, then they understood. Think about that for a minute. What does that say about these men? What does that say about them? What does it say about the Holy Spirit of God and his ability to take a wasted life and make it into something rare and precious? Isn't that exactly what you are hoping that God will do with you? Make you into something rare and precious? Let me share something with you, folks. What God wants to do in you, you have no idea. You have no clue. I know you're looking at yourself today and thinking, I guess this is it. Generally speaking, that's what people do. But you are mistaken. You have zero idea of what it is that God wants to do in you. Even in the rest of your life while you are on this rock. Not to mention what he intends to do with you in the ages to come. Think about the people that have been around you in your life people that you look up to, people that you see or have seen 
as being spiritual influences in your life, examples to you. Do you think God put those people with you by accident? Do you think that they were there without God considering the wealth of investment that he has placed in your life to build you up and encourage me, encourage you? God has plans for you. Of course, it's not about you, is it? It's not about you. But trust me, if I were able to tell you tonight the things that God plans to do with you, even in the rest of your life here, you would be absolutely unbelieving. You would, you would call me a liar. You'd say there's no way such a thing could be possible. But it is. It is. And he will do it. He will do it. All that he asks, all that he asks of you is that you give up on your kingdom here. Quit trying to make this world your kingdom. And if you will do that, then he will do amazing things. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So again, Peter takes as scriptural direction from the Lord, let another take his office, Psalm 109, verse 8. Peter is thinking that the Lord wants them to fill the position that Judas abandoned. And there should be, again, 12 apostles. I mean, we've got 12 tribes. should have 12 apostles. And he has a plan. And he kind of lays it out for us here in verses 21 and 22. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all, that the the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, meaning the ascension, these must become a witness. One of these must become a witness of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Notice they. Peter didn't propose two. They proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. <coughs> Excuse me. In Peter's mind, which seems perfectly reasonable to me, the person to fill this vacancy should be someone that has been a part of this ministry from the beginning. Good idea. Good sound ministry perspective. Don't go looking around outside for somebody special that hasn't been a part. Get somebody who's been involved in the work, who knows how things work and what Jesus meant, what he did, and how he conducted himself. Somebody that we all know well. Good. Someone reliable that can draw upon the same life experience that we've all gone through, most likely one of the 70 that went out two by two in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus sent out 70 men in 45 pairs, two by two. He said, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. These were advanced guys going out to preach the gospel, prepare people. Jesus was coming through the city. Probably one of these guys. Then someone, especially that can testify to the resurrection. Very important. Resurrection. If you take the time as we're going through the early chapters of the Gospel, of, or rather the book of Acts here, you will notice in the beginning of the Lord's ministry in Acts, here especially in the city of Jerusalem, there's a very powerful emphasis upon the resurrection. In fact, maybe, possibly, because the Sadducees are the religious party in power 
from which the high priest and likely the majority of the Sanhedrin council is affiliated. And because that is a prominent issue with the Sadducees, that they do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. How inconvenient for them to have Jesus just raised up from the dead. Just about as inconvenient as having Lazarus raised from the dead before. They were all twisted up about this. So in different places in the beginning here of the book of Acts, they object to the preaching of Christ in an interesting way. Look at in chapter 4, verse 2. Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were as bummed that people were preaching the resurrection of the dead as they were that they were preaching Jesus. Every time that there's an issue with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, the resurrection is inseparable from the person of Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection, as it should be for us at all times. The resurrection of Christ is the punctuation. It is the heart of the issue of the gospel of Christ. Peter is here suggesting to continue the office of the 12 apostles, emphasis upon 12, and he believes the Lord would have them do this, and he is backed by the idea with scripture. He's quoted numerous scriptures, mostly from Psalms. The question is, is the Lord really leading this here? Now, if you've spent a good deal of time listening to Bible studies, especially on the radio and stuff, you no doubt that you have through the years, or you will sooner or later, hear that this idea was not from God. You will hear people tell you that Peter's in the flesh and is following human reasoning. That obviously the 12th apostle is to be the apostle Paul and he will not be born again for a couple of years yet. A few years, actually. And according, again, to these teachers that you will hear, all right, we know that this is not God's plan because Peter and the 120 have not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit yet. Sounds like a persuasive argument if you don't really do your homework and dig into it. There are a couple of things that we should consider, okay? First of all, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to the 12, John chapter 20, verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Call me crazy. When you're talking to the risen Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he breathes on you, I'm thinking, you got it. You may not feel goosebumps or have chicken skin, but I'm thinking, if he says, receive it, and he breathes on you, you I'm, I'm thinking you got it. Certainly, these men had the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 1.13 tells us, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Indicating that, another example is going to come up a little bit later in the book of Acts, the fact that uh, Philip goes to Samaria. He preaches the gospel down there. People get saved. They get baptized in water. But the Holy Spirit doesn't fall upon them. They are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Were they saved? Yes, they were saved. Did they have the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Were they filled with the power of God that, that was exhibited in gifts and boldness in preaching the gospel and power of God in their lives? 
No, they were not. Not till Peter. And this is one of the things we see in the, in the book of Acts where God clearly reveals that having the Holy Spirit, being sealed with the Holy Spirit and promise, of promise, Ephesians 1.13, is a different thing than being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is why, I don't know about you, I pray every day, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. These guys had the Holy Spirit. They were about to receive the Lord's anointing to allow them to serve Him in power that He supplies by the filling of the Holy Spirit, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which every believer should partake of. However, Peter was prompted by the Scripture. And what have they been doing these days, these ten days? Praying like crazy people. Praying in one accord. Absolutely. Obviously, they're in the flesh. The scripture tells us that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is the apostle to the Gentiles by his own words. Romans eleven thirteen. I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. The word apostle, folks, you've got to realize, covers a lot of ground. And there are basically three different applications to the idea of this word apostle, all right? An apostle is different or can be different than one of the twelve. The twelve apostles were chosen by Christ as a witness of the gospel. There's a good number of men in the scripture that are called apostles that are not of the twelve apostles. Paul, as we just mentioned. James, the Lord's brother, 1 Corinthians 15.7. Paul says after that he was seen by James and then by all the apostles, including James as an apostle. 1 Corinthians 9.5. He talks about uh, James being, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, where you can make a case that he's including the brothers of the Lord as apostles. Um, Acts 14.14, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, he's including Barnabas as an apostle at that point, okay? Now, the second definition of an apostle would be those who had seen Jesus in his ministry and were sent by him to serve to a particular purpose. For instance, the 70 in, in, uh, that went out two by two. They were sent by Jesus. They were apostles. And then in the very broadest sense of the word, the word apostle simply means someone who is sent. Okay? Um, 2 Corinthians 11.13 says there are also one other consideration, and that is that there are false apostles. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostle of Christ. Self-proclaimed apostles. Like, for instance, let me give you an example. There's an apostolic church, and these people are taught. Many of them are born again. God bless them. I hope they do good work for the Lord. But they are taught that the leaders of apostolic churches are anointed with the gifts and abilities of the apostles of Christ, specifically. That's not really a scriptural concept. It doesn't really fly. And you find a lot of things in the apostolic church that also don't agree with the scripture. And so we need to be, you know, we need to be good Bereans. You know, Acts 17.11, we want to search the scripture daily, make sure what's going on here is what's going on here. Very important for us. Um. So we have the 12, the apostles of Christ, those who are extensions of his earthly ministry, 
which unfortunately men would like to claim that for themselves today, but that's not the case. And so then, like in everything, there are false apostles. We, we need to be wise. Uh, verse 24, it says, They prayed and said, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Then they cast their lots. The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The other thing that people will say about this, see, look, how did they do this? They gambled. They gambled. They cast lots. You know, how could this be of the Lord? You know, Well, you know what, folks? Go through the Bible and do a little research on the casting of lots and watch how many times God uses it in really powerful and productive ways. So just as the Lord spoke to the 12 in John chapter 20, Jesus said to them, Peace to you, as the Father sent me, I also send you. John seventeen eighteen in, in the Gospel of John, um, as Jesus is praying to the Father in John 17, he says to the Father, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Who is he praying for? He's praying for the apostles. But he's not only praying for the apostles, is he? That's John 17, 18. Two verses later, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. That as you have sent me, I send them. Jesus is praying that you would be sent the way that the Father sent him. The same way that he sent the apostles in John chapter 20 the same way, with the same anointing, the same Holy Spirit, and the same filling. There is a sense in which you are an apostle, the broadest possible sense. You've been sent by the Lord. You're not one of the twelve. You're not an apostle in the sense of the early church apostles. But keep in mind that there were false apostles as well. We, on the other hand, are called and sent with the purpose of serving others. John chapter 13, verse 15, Jesus says, For I've given you an example that you have, should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for your word, Lord, for how powerful it is, Lord, to speak to our hearts, to encourage and strengthen, to give us direction and wisdom to follow. Lord, we so want to follow you urgently and ardently and faithfully. We want to do that. Father, we are regularly distracted um, and sometimes discouraged. And Father, you know, Lord, we have to take responsibility for this. We lose focus. And uh, time has an issue with this as well, Lord. We, we start to wonder if the things that we have seen in your word really apply to us as we have thought in the past. And I know they do, Lord. They do. You are faithful. But Lord, we pray for your faithfulness to bear that fruit in our hearts and minds. Lord, make us an encouragement to others, each one of us here, that we would encourage the hearts 
of others. And Father, that people would come to know you because of the work that you have done in our hearts. We love you. We thank you. Father, we ask your blessing in Jesus' name.